0: I was trying to think about like, how do I tell these stories? How do I get people to share about their families and just like break this ignorance that says that all Jews, if they're like good Jews, come from families that are made up only of Jewish members. And then I was like, oh, I'm listening to a podcast right now. Oh, this podcast tells stories. Oh, maybe this is the best way to get this word out there.
1: Welcome to Trending Jewish. I am Rachel Burgess and here with my co-host Brian Schwartzman.
2: Shalom, Rachel.
1: Shalom, Brian. <laughs> I guess that still doesn't sound... Maybe by the end of the season we'll probably get that disdain correct. We've bonded so much over, over the past several years we, working together.
2: We don't need the Newman thing today because we've got our own built-in Seinfeld theme right into the episode. Ex- isn't?
1: Exactly. But maybe, Brian, you should... Explain our, where we're going today.
2: We're going today. Well, we have got a podcast episode about a podcast, which uh, reminded me anyway of the Seinfeld episode in which Kramer publishes a coffee table book about coffee tables that also becomes a coffee table.
1: That was, I I completely forgot until you had showed me that clip that the coffee table book becomes a coffee table but um, I don't think there's actually any coffee in the room so we don't have to worry about um, our guest um, spewing coffee all over us and ruining our clothes like Kramer does in the the sketch
2: right we can't play that in a clip it's just the physical comedy you have to see it so look it up on YouTube
1: and we're also putting it up on our webpage at uh, trending fm. so that's not gonna
2: get us sued is it? Yeah. We'll consult legal on that. Uh, yes, so. yes. I am thrilled to introduce Emily Cohen, who is a student here at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and the creator, producer, host of Jew 2, Tales of the Mixed Multitude, which is a podcast about sharing positive influences of dear ones from other faiths uh, on Jewish family, love, and life. And... Um, where it's, uh, you guys should check it out. What's the, what's the best way for folks to check it out, Rachel? That's, uh,
1: or I should, I should be uh, asking Emily that. There's a, there's a few ways.
0: Yeah, so we, we now have a website, which is very exciting. So it's jew to um, J-E-W-T-O-O podcast.com. And you can find all of our social media through that.
2: I totally froze and throw you on threw you on the air before we finished our, our introduction, but thanks for thanks for going with that. Um uh Emily's also the co-creator of the Hamilton Haggadah, which was a runaway viral uh smash uh parody, but not parody, of the hit Broadway musical and um a star around RC. I know uh Uh, a Star Wars fanatic, and we'll find out lots more about Emily. So welcome, and uh, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me, I'm really excited. Um, So
1: I'm actually very curious about why, talking about interfaith relationships interfaith families why was that so important to you to make this into a project into a podcast that you actually applied and got some grant funding for in order to help you do this why was this cause so important to you um
0: so i grew up in richmond virginia and in that community there were so many families that were comprised of Jewish parents and parents who were not Jewish and children being raised Jewish and maybe it's just because of where I grew up but it never felt like there was much of a distinction between the families that were made up entirely of Jews and the families that were not Um, and so it was only as a high schooler and college student that I came to discover the degree to which Interfaith families were treated a little bit differently in a lot of Jewish spaces from families that were not interfaith. And last year I was studying in Israel. I was in Jerusalem in the fall, Tel Aviv in the spring. And I think because of this like pretty huge divide there between secular and and religious... I found myself thinking a lot in binaries and feeling like I was not on either end of the binary, feeling like I was in this space in the middle and and in the sense of my Jewish identity and in the sense of the way that I practice and also in being, as so many Jews are, a part of a family that has people in it who are not Jewish. Mm -hmm. And it felt like the only way to start to break that cycle of people just saying you either are this or this was to tell stories of people that were both or neither or somewhere in the middle. Um, And so I remember actually the exact moment when I figured out this needs to be a podcast, I was walking to the central bus station from where I lived in Jaffa. Um, I was walking to like the middle of Tel Aviv, like a 45 minute walk. And um, I was trying to think about like, how do I tell these stories? How do I get people to share about their families and just like break this ignorance that says that all Jews, if they're like good Jews, I'm making air quotes that you can't see, um, you know, (laughs) come from families that that are made up only of Jewish members. And I was like walking through this plaza in Tel Aviv. And then I was like, oh, I'm listening to a podcast right now oh, this podcast tells stories. Oh, maybe this is the best way to get this word out there. Cause I think there's something about the power of like the human voice that goes so far beyond seeing something on a page. Um, and in some ways, even seeing something filmed, I think there's something about hearing somebody's story when you're not seeing them, when there's nothing visual to distract you from the story that they're telling, that's just really deeply compelling. So that's why I'm doing this.
2: It's amazing how this uh, how this form has just caught caught fire and really in, in 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 so many different ways and mediums really you know inspired people move them it's it's uh, I mean it's like I'm not a I'm not a historian but it's like the second you know great age of radio or something I mean um, I don't know if anybody's checked out uh, Homecoming but that was that was a a, a, a like a twelve part drama on the air with with um, with famous actors including David schwimmer and and Oscar Isaac, and just I mean, I don't know, even ten years ago, who thought of doing a drama on uh, on uh, on podcasts, but anyway, to get off my my diatribe i'm um, I'm really curious what are what were some of your influences in creating your your podcast? You really take an, an interesting approach which in which you have a a fully produced um, integrated episode that tells a very tight story. And then you're releasing what you call rough cuts, which are something akin to what we're doing here, which is more just like uh, listening in on a conversation. So sort of wondering what podcast influences you you drew from in, in creating this.
0: Sure. So I owe a ton to um, On Being and Krista Tippett. I've been listening to Mm -hmm. her show for so many years. I mean, back when it was speaking of faith and um, I went to college in Minnesota and have been really involved in interfaith work for a lot of my young adult life also. And so her podcast, um, her radio show really, but now it's also a podcast, um, has always been of interest to me. And she has, in addition to the produced episodes that she creates, which are something akin to Uh, They're not exactly like mine because hers are much more like a conversation, but it's an edited conversation. She also releases what she calls unheard cuts um, in which she records and releases the entire conversation that she has with her guest of the week. And you get to hear all of the random check ins like, oh, how are your kids? Oh, like, you know, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Let's do the sound check. You get to hear everything. And so. Sometimes when there's a guest that I'm really excited about, like when Martin Sheen was on her show, um, I went back and listened to like the entire hour and a half conversation and there's just this richness that you can't get. so the, I would say that that's certainly where the Rough Cuts inspiration comes from for me. Um, and for the produced episodes, I owe a little bit to This American Life, I would say. I mean, it's different, but I have that same sort of vibe of being like I'm kind of narrating and weaving multiple narratives together, which is something that they do on that podcast.
1: And even besides doing the multiple narratives, one of the things that really um, drew me in as well was your music as well was your music, which is also uh, a piece of you as well that's going into this. It's you on the guitar and who is playing the flute? I (laughs) want (laughs) to know.
0: So I'm playing the penny whistle. So I, I really love music and I have... I was very, very fortunate to get a small grant for this podcast from the Auerbach Foundation. And I've been using that to do some promotions and have like a little bit of an incentive for people to fill out feedback surveys after listening. But, um, and, and they also provided me with funds to purchase a mic and things that I needed. But. I didn't have money to pay royalties or to commission somebody to write me any sort of theme music. So I play guitar, not immaculately well, but like I play it well enough that I was just like, what can I do to just have a little bit of something underneath? And then I figured for the theme music, well, I used to play with an Irish folk band. I have a penny whistle. I may as well bring that out and see what I can do with it. So that's where that came from.
2: By the way, if we haven't said on the air, we have Rabbi Leah Moser to thank uh, our first guest for composing our Theme song, which I love and yes, listen so. to just for fun.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I I do that as well. So I'm uh. glad that I wasn't the only one.
2: <laughs> um, so you really get people to share personal stories in, in almost a journalistic vein. Um, it sounds like something you may, you may have wrestled with, but I'm wondering is there is there a point you're you're trying to sh- drive home, or are you just are you just sharing stories, or is it a little bit of both?
0: It, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I will say that there's a few moments that stick out as far as why I actually decided that this podcast needed to happen. Um, one of them was several years ago. I was at a conference for Interfaith. um or sorry, it wasn't interfaith. It was, it was a conference for rabbinical students from different seminaries. And um, at this conference, there was a student from a different seminary who said during dinner, we were having a conversation about interfaith families. Um, and this person said um, that they couldn't imagine somebody growing up in a house with a Christmas tree, growing up to think that they were Jewish. Um, even if they were raised Jewish, even if they were told they were Jewish, had a bar bat mitzvah, all of that. And um, this this comment really, really stuck with me because I know so many Jews who grew up with Christmas trees, so many. And um, so I guess the point that I'm trying to drive home is just not only is it possible, it's happening. And the Jews who grew up with Christmas trees are not any less Jewish because of that object in their house. The Jews who have a parent who practices a different faith and who has opted to raise their children Jewish, they are not any less Jewish than the than the children who grew up with two Jewish parents. And so the point I'm trying to drive home is just— we exist, we're here, we are the Jewish future. 72% of non-Orthodox Jews are now marrying people who are not Jewish. That is a huge, huge number. About half of millennials were raised by one Jewish parent rather than two. And so it's just showing that like, we are the wave of the Jewish future and that's not something to be afraid of, that's something to celebrate and to learn more about. And if I can break even one person's ignorance about that, I've done my job. It's it's interesting
1: that experience that you had in your conference. When I was in college, I had had a rabbi who um, was just casually talking to us and talked a little bit about interfaith, and he had said that um, children of interfaith marriages end up becoming um, very uh, emotionally unstable and become sociopathic and end up in jail. And at that moment when he was saying these things, he actually didn't know that I was a child of an interfaith marriage. My mother is Jewish. My father is a uh, uh, Protestant Christian. And it was very insulting to hear, you know, I, you know, here I am supposed to be uh, emotionally unstable and becoming sociopathic and ending up in jail. And this was this assumption that this person had having not really known anybody like this. So was, it's interesting that those are the kind of stereotypes. I wonder if you're, um, if part of this is with the interfaith i feel like when we talk about interfaith we're more talking about um, christians and jews marrying not so much um, other religions it doesn't seem to be so much talked about Um, what were your kind of experiences with that as you've been interviewing people as you've been diving into this topic is it the real controversy between um, is it really about interfaith or is it really about intermingling with christianity
0: that's an interesting question. And I think certainly there are more Jews who marry Christians than marry any other non-Jewish group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last stats I saw were the largest, the, the, the greatest percentage is, is Jewish and Catholic, followed by Jewish and unaffiliated, followed by Jewish and Protestant. Um, I have interviewed one person who is married to somebody who comes from a Hindu background Um, you know, I have a relative, a close relative who's in a very serious relationship with somebody from a Muslim background, you know, like, and and so like, I don't think that it's only Jews and Christians who are intermarrying by any means. But I think just because of the general Christian hegemony that like holds in the United States, um, that is what's talked about more than anything, that seems more threatening, I think, to a lot of Jewish families, you know, this idea that, we're going to be subsumed into Christian culture if it is put into our lives in any way. I think that that is a bigger threat in a lot of Jewish minds than like if there were to be Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist practices in one's life because those practices are not reflected by the outside culture in the United States in nearly as intense a way.
2: I mean, there's there's just so much to that, I think, that we— that so many jews even that aren't knowledgeable or particularly engaged in their jewishness feel that their identity is somehow distinct and 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 giving that away is something that's that's they're really afraid of and and you know i'm not sure i'm not sure where that comes from but i've i've heard that uh i've definitely heard that before
0: i mean i think it, it the, you can see a lot of historical precedent for that like there have been hundreds if, there have been hundreds of years of Christian persecution of Jewish identity. And, you know, it doesn't always happen. It's not, you know, but, but it is something where if you look at the Middle Ages, the the Muslim Jewish relations were generally much better than the Christian Jewish relations. Um, and so there is a lot of fear. And some of that I would say is justified, and some is, is over the top. But You can understand if you look at the history of Judaism and the history of Judaism and its interactions with Christianity, why that fear holds. I just don't think that it needs to prevent all Christian Jewish interaction from happening and it needs to prevent Christian Jewish families from forming.
1: There is one of the things that I think that is really neat about your podcast. I mean, we have organizations like um, Interfaith Family that has a lot of different counseling and resources, specifically for couples as well, who are um, trying to raise children. Um, And both of the partners are of different religions. And One of the things that you do in your podcast is you're not just talking to couples. You're not just talking about, you're talking about a bunch of different family members. Your very first episode is actually talking about um, people who had grandparents of different religions. So why did you think that it was important to tell this all-encompassing story besides just the stereotypical uh, my uh, these parents or uh, this couple is interfaith and what happens
0: to their children? Well, so I think a lot of the fear mongering in the Jewish community comes from this couple is interfaith and here's what happens to their children. And usually in those stories, when they're made into anecdotes or you're just looking at like straight up statistics, you see, oh, if there's an interfaith couple, the chance of their children being affiliated with the Jewish community goes down significantly and all of that. So I wanted to show... That there's so much more to the constellation of any jewish person than than just the person that they happen to be partnered with or their parent or you know anything like that um you know i think w- when you spoke about your experience in, in college where that rabbi said such negative things about you being or without knowing that you were a child of interfaith marriage but said negative things about those children it you know even if you had been the child of two Jews, what if one of your parents was the child of a Jew and somebody who wasn't Jewish? You know, like so many of us are connected to worlds where people in them are Jewish and are not Jewish and decided to become Jewish at some point along the way. And we're just so much more than our partners. And so I wanted to tell the stories of people who might be the children of two Jewish parents, but still have really important relationships in their lives that are not. Jews.
2: What's, uh, what surprised you the most um, so far? It sounds like you went into this having thought a lot about these issues. So what anecdote or fact or you know has sort of surprised you the most so far?
0: That's a great question. Um, one thing I would say is just I am really honored by the degree to which people have opened up to me. Um, I didn't know how much to expect that when I sat down to do my first few interviews and some of them were with people that I knew I mean the first person I interviewed was somebody who might actually lived with for a year when we were both rabbinical students here she was one of my roommates. Um, And so I expected that perhaps she would be very open. But the second person I talked to was somebody whom I'd never met, still haven't met in person, but somebody who found out about the podcast over social media and offered to tell her story. And she just opened up and told me so much about her life. Um, And it's, you know, I think about the role of a rabbi as a podcast editor and a podcast producer and that perhaps because I... Am also learning to be a pastoral presence like that lets people feel comfortable with sharing very deep parts of themselves. But that's what I keep coming back to is just every time I have one of these interviews, the degree to which people trust me with their story is really incredible and not something I take for granted at all.
1: Do you think that having that background as, um, as a rabbi and or um, as a rabbinical student, and I think... Um, I think some of us kind of subconsciously put rabbi to you, even even right before your ordination, which is coming very soon, actually, is right around the corner. (laughs) Um, Do you think that that helps people open up to you? Do you think that kind of makes people shy away from you, thinking that you're going to somehow judge them for not being Jewish enough? Or what do you think that role does in this
0: you know, it, for you. it's interesting. I think when people first meet me and, you know, you can't see me, but I, I have dark curly hair. I look very Ashkenazi. Like people look at me and probably make the assumption most of the time. My, my last name is Cohen, you know, that, that, I, that I am of a completely Jewish background and that everybody in my family is Jewish and nobody would dare to marry somebody who wasn't Jewish, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that when people don't know my passion for Celebrating interfaith families, they might be likely to be worried about being judged if they mention something about their child dating somebody who's Christian, or like you know having an aunt or whatever. Um, but I think that when I approach people about the podcast, they know that I hold this passion, and I and I think, although of course I can't know what's going on in people's heads, that that helps them to open up more because they're aware that. I am a rabbinical student. I am hopefully very soon going to be a rabbi and I really care about their families and I see them. I see them for who they are and I see them for what they bring to the Jewish community.
2: So I'm one of these anachronisms that that, that has four four Jewish grandparents. I feel it's okay, like you I, count too. I count too. So <laughs> you mentioned you meant I'm just you mentioned the Jewish past and you also mentioned the Jewish future. I think it's I mean it's fair to say a big Jewish survival technique over the centuries was erecting barriers. I mean you could you could tell me better than I know there's a there's a line from somewhere saying build a fence around around the Torah. Mm-hmm. You can argue that same thing was was meant for the, the the Jewish community. I mean I mean in a lot of ways that fence has come down and and we're we're actively trying to bring it down. But what, you know, Have you thought about what we as a, you know, as a people, as a religion, as a civilization, whatever you want to call it, look like going forward in sort of a barrierless state or...
0: Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be barriers to some degree. And, like, even the rabbis that I know who are totally welcoming of interfaith families, like, everybody has their own line. Hybridity is becoming a bigger and bigger segment. It's still very small, but there are a growing number of families who are choosing to try to raise children as Jewish and Christian. Not, like, religiously Jewish with, like, Christian cultural celebrations, like, you know, having a Christmas tree and getting some presents on December 25th, but really trying to be members of multiple religious bodies and having children have multiple rights and that's something that I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around which is not to say that I'll never get there but right now that that's challenging for me um and I and I know that there are people who are trying to figure out like just all kinds of things about I mean like you can look at other elements of Jewish life that have nothing to do with interfaith it, status or lack thereof I mean you know how do you have a ceremony for a 12 or 13 13- year 13-year-old child who is genderqueer. Um, you know, like you, you aren't going to call it a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. You know, like th- we, I think that we are constantly having to take stock of where we are in time and where we are civilizationally. And I mean, that's I mean, that's the Reconstructionist way of life. Right. You know, like we look at the American civilization, we look at the Jewish civilization and we say, how do we put these together in a way that is holy? Um, and so is it bad to have four Jewish grandparents? Of course not. You know, like I, and I think that it's wonderful if like, you know, that's the way that your family constellation worked out. But I think it's just we are growing the tent. And is it going to be is it ever going to be barrierless? I, I very much doubt it. You know, I mean, if there's somebody who celebrates Christmas and Easter and goes to church every Sunday and wants to have their child have a bar mitzvah because they have like one Jewish grandparent but have never done anything to celebrate Judaism, I doubt there are many rabbis who would say, great, this is a Jewish child. Um, But I think that we have to constantly be able to look at where our tent is and figure out how to get as many people as possible who want to be in the tent to be inside.
1: So what can we expect coming up in your podcast? I'm I'm very I'm very anxious to find out.
0: <laughs> um, so the October episode I hope, which I guess is going to come out before this comes out, um, will be about Jews who are of patrilineal descent, so Jews who have mothers who were not Jewish at the time of their birth. Um, and so two of the interviews for that podcast are people that have that were on previous episodes but they had so much to say that instead of trying to cram it all into one i was just like you know what i'm gonna feature you guys in more than one episode because i mean these people have such amazing stories and it's impossible to tell the whole thing unless i release a rough cut so um so that's october and then november i'm hoping is going to be um interfaith relationships so um partners who one is jewish and one is not So
1: that's interesting with patrilineal descent, and this had been um, a conversation that I had quite a bit growing up where um, my mother's family was a little bit more on the conservative, almost um, um, pretty, actually pretty, um, almost on the orthodox side of conservative, where when we would talk about the logic as to why you're Jewish if your mother is Jewish, that the mother is the one that raises, it's the one that raises the children, and um, how is patrilineal descent being accepted into the
0: Jewish community? So it depends on what part of the Jewish community you're talking about. Um, The Reconstructionist movement has affirmed patrilineal descent, I want to say, since the 60s. And the reform movement came on board in the early 80s, early mid-80s. In the conservative world and anything to the right of that world, um, patrilineal descent is still not accepted. So if you have a mother who's not Jewish at the time of your birth, or even a mother who did not convert to Judaism under acceptable auspices, according to the rabbis who are, going to declare your child Jewish or not, the child has to go through a process of conversion. Um, So that's, uh, it's a a huge issue because when you have 72% of non-Orthodox Jews, so not just Reform and Reconstructionists, but also conservative Jews, I mean, the number is smaller for conservative, but they're still a part of that overall percentage. When they're marrying people who aren't Jewish, and presumably some of those are going to be women who are not Jewish, and you have children who are being born of those unions who are not accepted as Jews in conservative spaces unless they go through conversion. I I wonder about the message that that sends to those families. Um, you know, it, it's I, I have a cousin. I have two cousins. Um, they're they're 11 and 8, and uh, their dad is Ashkenazi, and their mom is Japanese American, like fourth generation from Hawaii. Um, and so they are growing up jewish like they they have a christmas tree but they they don't celebrate christian holidays they are not members of a church and in their synagogue they're completely accepted as jews and my cousin is having her bat mitzvah in a year from october a year from this month which is crazy because i remember when she was born um (laughs) you know but but she's she's this like great jewish kid her brother is this great jewish kid and i really worry about when they're a little bit older and they're out in the Jewish world, when not everybody will accept them as Jews. Um, what's that going to do the, the, to their Jewish identities? You know, are they going to grow up? Are they going to go to college? And you know, they, they look like they are half white and half Asian American because they are. Um, and when they go to their Hillels on their college campuses, or if they try to join a synagogue as adults, um, to what degree are they going to have trouble because their mother is not Jewish? I I don't know. Um, but I really worry about that, and I really worry about, in general, all of the children who are being raised in these Jewish homes and in these Jewish communities that love them for being Jewish, who then might basically be shown the door either to the mikvah or back out to the street when they show up to a community that they want to be a part of that doesn't recognize them. So I know that, um,
1: as, as we can talk about this for a long time, I know uh, Brian had a question for you that was... Um, a bit off of this topic, but I, I thought it was—I thought it was so fascinating when you brought this up.
2: Well, I am—I um, have a captive audience, so I figured I could—I could seek some <laughs> rabbinic counseling. Um, this so you and I first connected when, uh, like, when I very started my, my job at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. It was the week that the Force Awakens came out—big, uh, big, exciting moment for a lot of us Star Wars fans. Um, um, I, I asked students if uh, who who was interested in writing a reconstructionist critique of of the new film, and you you jumped right in there. so so here's here's my my conundrum. i'm I'm a little bit I'm a little bit older. my my um my mother actually took me to see Empire Strikes Back in the theater, which mm-hmm. s- kind of strikes me now as a little bit inappropriate. I was four. I, I saw, um, but
1: you turned out okay. I right? turned out okay. <laughs> no, no,
2: my police record is is good. So, um, and I, I saw Return of the Jedi three times the summer it came out. I mean, I mean, my first introduction to moral complexity was was when Darth Vader, you know, changes sides and and becomes good at the end. I mean, way before I knew a Bible story or or. Had ever set foot in a, in, a, in a Hebrew school classroom. I had this this pop culture mythology sort of imprinted on my on my on my brain, and I've st- I've studied at the Jewish Theological Seminary. I've spent a lot of my adult life in sort of the Jewish world, but to me, the pop cultural side and references still still sort of rings stronger. And I guess like like I'm wondering is that you know, as a pop cultural culture person, starting to be a rabbi—is that okay? Do these can these two sides coexist, or, are you know, that's that's sort of what I was uh, what I was wondering.
0: The the two sides being pop culture and religion.
2: Religion. Why are they the, different? Why are they different? I don't know. The the, I mean, well, first off, I guess I was bothered by the idea that that I mean, at its heart. I mean the folks who can't you know were are responsible for Star Wars were were you know trying to create or created a money making juggernaut like we could say what we want about the intentions of the redactors of the Tanakh but you know we think their intentions were 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 pure right I mean mm-hmm. I mean they're coming from very different different places or or frames of reference
0: yeah so so i just started listening to harry potter and the sacred text and i have no idea how it took me so long to find it because it's like the best thing um and (laughs) I, i i'm a huge harry potter nerd as well um and you know so every week they go through a chapter and they read it through not exactly a religious lens but they read it as though approaching it religiously and i love that because i think you know if there's something that connects you to what is greater than you then I think if you can connect it to your faith, that's really fantastic. And I think there are really great ways to connect Star Wars and Judaism, and, and we can talk lots more about that. But you know, I mean, I, I go back to this line in Harry Potter: like, just because it's all happening in your head, Harry, doesn't mean it's not real. And um, that Dumbledore said that at the end of um, the seventh book, and I think seventh, yes, yes, I know my trivia, I know it. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, so it's, but I think that that moment and like that line. If you watch Star Wars and you see this evil figure that you've watched be evil for three episodes suddenly turn out to have this shred of humanity left in him, there is something powerful in that. There is a religious motif in that and i don't think that that means that you don't then turn around and read the torah as well but if watching darth vader save his child from this horrific death at the hands of palpatine like if that helps you to feel more connected to the essential you know yetzer hatov like the the good urge Um, like the urge to do good that is in every human like versus ra, like that that's a good thing and there's a religious tie in there you just need to know enough about your religion to find that tie in so that's always what I'm struggling with is like you know how do I take these amazing religious concepts that you can find in Star Wars and Harry Potter and like you know you can keep listing them off and make sure that people have the Jewish knowledge they need to connect them because the connections are there.
1: I'm so fascinated to see what your rabbinate is going to be like. Me being too. able to <laughs> um, pull together all of these pieces, where on the one hand you were pulling all the pieces that make um, a fulfilling Jewish experience in an interfaith family, and then as well um, using all of your uh, dare I say nerdiness to be able. To <laughs> I'll claim it. Yeah. <laughs> to um, be able to. Create the, or to be able to create connections to uh, a higher purpose, a higher power, and reaching potential. Um, Thank even, you. Even though uh, I, I find it fascinating where you were talking about the Star Wars being, you know, the money maker. Is it okay to get moral uh, <laughs> direction from?
2: <laughs> Hopefully, you're not the only one that found that line, uh, line of thought interesting. Um, any, um, is there any future for the, uh, for the? Hamilton hagada that that was like this huge thing that that sounds like you just started carpooling on the on the way to school
1: another one of those pieces that you took from your yeah. dare I say nerdiness <laughs> I, I love it yeah, I, yeah. I I'm definitely uh feeling a connection here because but uh-huh. um you're taking Hamilton the musical and you're putting it together with the with um the Haggadah and creating this uh beautiful work that was actually ranked um, one of the top pagadas to seek out and use during your Seder by, I think, Forward and JTA.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was it was amazing that we got such ridiculous, unexpected press, and it was really delightful. But, I mean, Hamilton's another one of those really deeply spiritual things. Like, I, I remember in Israel last year, the, the mixtape had just dropped, and... Um, I was listening to some of the songs right before Shabbat in Jerusalem, and I knew that I needed to like turn off my computer and go to services. And I had this moment of being like, I don't want to do that. I want to listen to the mixtape. This is so good. And then I was like, no you're Jewish. You're here. That's like, you're going to go to this amazing musical service. You're going to have a really lovely spiritual experience. You're going to do what you need to do because you are, you are a Jew. Um, but that didn't mean that I wasn't getting some spiritual nourishment from these words and these artists who were pouring their hearts and souls into Hamilton. Um, so yeah, as far as the future of the Haggadah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like Jake and I, Jake Adler, my Jake best Adler, my, um, co-creator, you know, we, we put together the entire Haggadah last year. So you can actually use it as a standalone work right now. You don't need to have anything else for your Seder. Um, so that kind of felt like the culmination of the project. But there are a couple songs that we never really recorded. And so it's possible, you know, we'll see how things how crazy things are for us in the spring. We're both God willing graduating in June. So we might not have time to really go back and do more recordings, but we might. I And, you know, if Lynn manuel Miranda or, you know, David Diggs or anybody else ever wants to get in touch and be like, we want to record this, we'll, we'll give them the rights they they can have those
2: (laughs) I mean you totally picked up on I mean raise raise a glass to freedom seems like it could have been written for for Passover Mm -hmm. but I mean any thoughts on why Hamilton has you know the story and the story is interpreted by Lin-Manuel Miranda why it's why it's touched so many people and and become the phenomenon it, it has
0: I mean, I think many people have thoughts on this, and I, w- I would just echo what I've heard from other sources, which I agree with. I mean, I, I was a history major, and I really love American history. I, I have roots here that trace back to the 1630s myself, and like, it's it's cool to see kind of the progression throughout throughout time um, of everything that's happened in this tiny little place that we call. It's actually really not tiny. Um, it's a big place. It's tiny in scale of the universe. It's not tiny in scale of the Earth. Um, but anyway, I think you know, with with his work, he was able. I think I don't think he was thinking this way but I think it's very reconstructionist because he took this story that we've had for you know a couple hundred years at this point and he made it into something that really hits the core of what Americans are about today you know it it adapts to its current circumstances. So instead of being like here are a bunch of white guys and they're going to talk about all of these things and like if you are not a white male you have no place in this story. It takes actors of color and you know he said that you'd be totally comfortable seeing it um, cross-cast where you know you have women playing Alexander Hamilton and some of the other leads um, or people who are not men of other genders, you know, but but I think that he is able to take this really old story, this this I would say historic myth, you know, like there are some stretches of the truth and also there's just a ton that we don't know about exactly how everything went down. But he's able to adapt it to the America of today in the way that I would hope that in Reconstructionist Judaism we adapt like the Judaism that we've had for millennia and make it something that still speaks to the heart of the human experience.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us and especially, you know, during your very busy last year at RRC and taking a break from your podcast for a hot minute before diving right back in again. So um, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, being able to educate us about all these different facets that make up
0: a meaningful Jewish experience. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be on the other side of the mic. I'm really, <laughs> I'm enjoying this. It's like a meta-podcast. Podcast, going back to Seinfeld. It's a podcast about podcasts. This is our podcast about podcasts. Yeah.
2: Well, thanks and, and good luck. We, we, uh, we look forward to future episodes of your podcast. And uh, if Which, we stay on, if we go for a run long enough, maybe maybe we'd be lucky enough to have you back.
1: Thank you. And uh, you can check out Jew2 at J E W T O O podcast.com. You can also see more at our website, which is trendingjewish.fireside.fm. So I am Rachel Burgess here with
2: Ryan Schwartzman.
1: You've been listening to Trending Jewish.